Richard, let's go back in your life a little bit. Um, you already had a following at the point where you began your inquiry into the myths. Correct. Yeah. Position. How did you? How did, how did you have it? How were, were, you, were you going through school and you were just like online vlogging or something? Or how did you? Well, it, it goes back. I mean, it really goes back to. Um, so I was never really a believing Christian. My family was nominally liberal Christian, but I, they didn't require me to have faith in anything. Yeah. Um, I, I went to Sunday school and things like that. But uh, but it wasn't really for me. It wasn't impressed upon me that I needed to be a Christian, per se. They wanted yeah. me to pick my own path. And my first true religion, uh, when I was in uh, early high school, when I started high school, I had a religious experience that convinced me that Taoism was true. And so I became a devout Taoist, a philosophical Taoist for many years, all the way up into my military service. Uh, and it was in my military service that I lost my faith in Taoism. And what that did was I realized, well, if that's, this isn't true, what is true? And that started my quest for building a, a philosophical worldview out of reason and evidence. And so that's led to my book, Sense and Goodness Without God, which that was many, many years later. And finally, the final form of it was published in 2005. And that's my first book, Sense and Goodness Without God. But before all of that, I was also getting more and more involved um, in once I realized I was an atheist. And that resulted from reading the Bible uh, after I lost my faith. <laughs> Uh, I said, well, what is true? And I read the Bible and, and, and declared out loud, I'm definitely an atheist now. Uh, so, <laughs> but um, also getting more involved in politics, what I discovered were fundamentalists. I, had, I didn't really have a good sense of fundamentalism until they were the enemies in my way on every political issue uh, that I wanted to fight for. So, uh, so I got more involved in engaging uh, apologetics and counter apologetics got more involved in the online community and eventually became editor of the uh, feedback forum for um, the secular web and then eventually became the editor in chief of the secular web. And this is in the, the late nineties. And during all of that process, uh, that's when I started to acquire my fan base. People loved how I'd respond to letters on the, the free, uh, the uh, feedback forum, uh, loved my work on the secular web because I published articles and, and so on and did more and more of that. Um, then my book came out, then I was on a speaking circuit. So it, I, my fan base grew uh, just enjoying what I was writing and composing. Eventually I got into blogging as well. Um, and, so, uh, and so I'm still blogging today. So some of my best work is uh, on my blog at richardcarrier.info for those who are interested in that. And that's what, that's what created this sort of following. And at the same time, I ended up going to university, ultimately got a fellowship to do a PhD in ancient history at Columbia. Took a really long time. That was over a decade uh, of grad school. Um, but I had my following during all of this. So, so when it came time, when I got my PhD, I had a really strong fan base that were willing to fund my research on the historicity of Jesus. And how do you feel like your work has been received by your peers? Um, mixed results. The most, so in, let's say in biblical studies, uh, let's talk about that. Um, historians outside biblical studies largely don't care about the historicity of Jesus, so they rarely comment. Uh, yeah. It's just uh, scholars in biblical studies that care. And of course, the Christian ones care for obvious reasons. Um, and the secular ones care because it's also, in many respects, it's a threat to their, uh, their whole body of work because they've been operating on the assumption that Jesus existed. And there's this sort of inertial, uh, this sort of uh, institutional inertia where they just don't like interlopers suggesting that the, their fundamental theories are wrong. Uh, it's the same thing that happened with Thomas Thompson in the 70s, right? So that it was the same sort of pushback against this there's no Moses thing. And I'm basically starting that movement on the there's no Jesus thing, or at least we should be Jesus agnostics in terms of historicity, at the very least. Uh, and so mostly there's a sort of 
stalwart push to ignore my work and not read it and not confront it. And the ones who do confront it clearly don't read it because they actually completely get wrong what's actually in the book. Uh, <laughs> and I've confronted several of these scholars on this point. Uh, I've, on my blog, you can find a um, list of responses uh, to defenders of historicity. I have an ongoing list of names of people who've tried to argue uh, in this subject. And you can go and look and you can see where they just they just don't read the book. This, they just think it's ridiculous and assume they can argue from the armchair against it without actually confronting the actual evidence and arguments. So that's a bit frustrating. But at the same time, we've got, now there's about eight of us, uh, this PhDs in relevant fields who are at least at historicity agnostics about Jesus and gone on the record uh, as such. And about three others who've at least admitted that it's a plausible theory, that it should it deserves a place among all of the debated theories of the origins of Christianity. So we've got, you know, 12, uh, you know, 11, about 11 scholars now uh, who at least think this should be taken more seriously or actually agree that the, it's doubtable, the historicity of Jesus is doubtable. And that's grown. So that, that'll probably keep growing as we move a decade or two from here. How, how fringe is the idea of the mythicist view? It, it's reasonably fringe, right? So like if we talk about um, eight scholars on the record who admit to agnosticism at least, and only three others who say it's plausible. Now there might be, there. Are, I know for a fact there are many more who do think it's plausible or who are doubters, but won't go public for it because they don't like, they don't want to deal with the backlash. Uh, they don't want to be called ridiculous and, and, and lose their grant money or, uh, you know, get screwed over in their uh, university appointments and things like that. So there are folks who, uh, who stay underground on this, but the ones who've come out, uh, it is only a, right now, like a, basically, you know, a dozen of us essentially. So, um, that's, I don't, I don't know how fringe that counts. Uh, if there's a dozen dissenting scholars, it's a difficult field to measure though, because this about 80% of it is fundamentalist or, uh, devoted Christian. So there's a strong religious bias, uh, that's very difficult to overcome. So, um, really you got to look at the secular scholars in the field. And it's really difficult to figure out who those are because sometimes they'll, scholars won't be out about what their religious bias is. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's difficult to figure which scholar should you trust on this to be an unbiased analyst. Well, atheist scholars, secular scholars are the most unbiased because they don't care whether Jesus existed or not. They can explain Christianity without the supernatural either way. So atheism is compatible with both. It's not a threat uh, uh, to atheism. So atheists can have a more objective view of it. Uh, and I think that's probably where we're going to gain more ground. Probably some of the more younger up and coming scholars will be freer to entertain this possibility than older established scholars. The, the same story that that took place with Moses and continues to take place in, in all kinds of paradigm shifts uh, in the history of history. In the public forums or even in the realm of academic, in the academic arena, why is it important at all? that Jesus was either a historical figure or that all this literature is just a mythical take on this type of ideology. Why is this important? Yeah, it shouldn't be hugely important. It's important <laughs> in the basic sense that we want to re accurately reconstruct what happened in history. So everything is important from a historical perspective, like if it, the historicity of Hercules, the historicity of Homer. These are, these are serious things dis discussed in the field. There's not like there's no existential worldview threat to suggesting that Homer didn't exist or that Hercules didn't exist. Um, so it's not a fraught uh, debate. Like people are really, yeah, okay, maybe, yeah, it looks like Homer probably didn't exist. Looks like Hercules probably didn't exist. Um, and is there any evidence you could throw for either one? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but it's not enough to win the case. So you can have these sort of open free debates and people don't freak out over it. 
Uh, and but it's it's a debate worth having because that we just want to understand the nature of history. Did someone named Homer write the Iliad and Odyssey? Like that's just you might think that's a trivial. It is kind of trivial and compared to all the things in the world, but it is what historians exist to do is answer questions like that, as we want to know, like how, how did this text come to be? And in the case of Homer, the texts are a sort of mishmash of Bronze Age and Iron Age stories. So it clearly was written over hundreds of years, so it can't have been written by a single person. So that's that casts into doubt the historicity of Homer. Homer seems to be a name they just slapped on the final product to give it a sort of authority to say, yeah, he's the guy who wrote all this stuff, uh, whoever. Uh, and you can do similar things to talk about Hercules and so on. It's only because Christianity is a politically important, socially important, and financially powerful religious interest uh, that challenging the historicity of Jesus uh, freaks people out and, and raises a ruckus. Why is that something we need to get over? Uh, get over that? We should get rid of it. As historians, I would say, and certainly as anyone who wants to have a truer or more accurate understanding of their own history, um, which historians are supposed to give them, they should care whether historians are using logically valid methods and reaching logically valid conclusions from actual evidence and not making stuff up, uh, not using specious arguments and things like that. And that should be true in everything, in the history of, of World War II, in the history of the Civil War, the Middle Ages, ancient Rome, the, the, the rise of empires, all of these things, we should have more and more accurate views and, and be worried when historians are actually defending specious conclusions with specious logic. Uh, and these are the actual professionals doing this. That could, should concern us. We should not want historians who act that way. We should want historians who actually want to be uh, objective and reliable, essentially. When you're discussing with others what you've found or the evidence that you have that allows you to arrive at the best conclusion which you have arrived. Mm -hmm. And you find that on the opposition, uh, you are facing a fundamentalist Christian, or in other words, maybe even a historian that you know seems to not be taking the considerations of evidence very heavily. Do you find that they see you as somebody challenging the message of Jesus or... Mm. Do they give you ad hominem kind of attacks? What, uh, is there any part of that frustration there? Yeah, maybe a little. Um, it, it's mostly just the existential threat to suggest that their savior figure didn't exist. I think they're more concerned about their salvation than about the moral message of Jesus because as an atheist, and uh, I've always been advocating for a secular understanding of ethics, so we, we've never needed Jesus uh, to be an authority on moral matters at all. Um, and, uh, and that's always been true throughout the atheist community and through uh, secular people in general. So th there's no sort of existential threat usually expressed that I'm destroying Christian morality. That, that's kind of an old argument that died out like t 20 years ago, practically. The morality uh, argument is died out? Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the idea that challenging uh, the morality that you, you have to have Jesus to have morality, as opposed to having God, that's a different question altogether, right? Um, to, to say that we need the figure of Jesus to get our morals from, that's that that just doesn't sell very much anymore. Uh, and so it might sell within Christian circles, but it, it, they can't push that narrative uh, to seculars usually. They do sometimes try it, but it, it is a, one of the weakest of arguments that you run into. Now, the moral argument for the existence of God, that's a whole other story. Uh, but that only gets you to a God, uh, not necessarily to Jesus specifically. Right. And um, that's a different matter. 